Um, let's pray as we come to God's word now. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that yours are the words of eternal life. Father, yours are the words that uh, the people of London need to hear. And so we thank you again for uh, hearing James's heart to share that word with them. And Father, these are the words that we need to hear this evening. And so please would you give us ears to hear and hearts to take in and respond uh, to what you have to say to us now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we start off uh, looking at these two chapters this evening, I I want you to uh, think about whether you've ever asked or been asked, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Uh, Whether it was in the school playground, uh, in the office, uh, in a conversation about Boris Johnson, uh, whose side are you on? It's a a question we often ask, we we ask all the time, don't we? And it's a question, I think, that lies at the heart of our passage uh, this evening. In fact, it's actually a question that that is a big question in the book of Judges. If you've been with us, we're now a a few weeks into our our series looking uh, at this book. And and if we went back to the the book just before, the book of Joshua, uh, we would see that Israel, God's people, had chosen a side. They had decided to follow the Lord, uh, to walk in wholehearted obedience to him. They were on his side. But as we've already begun to see, they quickly struggled to follow through with that commitment. Uh, The nations around them and the idols that they served caused Israel to question whether the Lord's side was really the best side to be on. And so time and time again, Israel, we see, try to live with a foot in two camps. They want to be on both sides at once, a bit of Yahweh, a bit of the Lord, and a bit of these nice-looking idols. They try to do both at once. They try to have the best of both worlds, and the result, as we've seen, is complete disaster. And the same can be true for for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, can't it? Like those here this evening that have decided to follow Jesus. We've committed to, to live in wholehearted obedience to him as our Lord. But then when the rubber hits the road, when the voices of our culture get louder and the idols seem more and more attractive, we can struggle, can't we? We can question, even doubt whether... Jesus' side really is the best side to be on. And so whether we think we've been a Christian for years and years and years, or whether we're just exploring these things this evening, we need to ask ourselves that question, whose side am I really on? That's the question we're going to be thinking about for the next little bit of time, and these two chapters are going to help us with it. You might have picked up as we read chapters 4 and 5 that that these are are two chapters describing the same set of events. Chapter 4 tells us the story, and chapter 5 gives us the soundtrack. I was a bit disappointed that Matt didn't sing chapter 5 for us, but we'll let him off. Chapter 4 is the story, chapter 5 is the soundtrack, and so we're going to run now quite quickly through the story, and then we'll turn to the soundtrack to kind of draw out some lessons for us today. So first... The story, look back at chapter 4, have that open in front of you. It will be helpful to follow uh, along if you can. 
Chapter 4 begins with that familiar pattern that we've seen now uh, in the book of Judges. Ehud, God's deliverer from last week, is dead. And so it's not very long before Israel returns to their old sinful ways. Uh, 4 verse 1, again, they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so they end up in the hands of another foreign king. This time it's King Jabin and his right-hand man, Sisera. Just like King Cushion, the doubly wicked from last week, and Big Fat Eglon, these guys are a nasty piece of work. They are bad news. Sisera, we learn in chapter 4, is the commander of Jabin's army. He's got about 900 chariots at his disposal. Chariots were like the tanks of their day, and so this is a commander with a, a lot of firepower. But not only is Sisera powerful, he is also wicked. At the end of chapter 5, Sisera's mum is singing a song as she waits for her beloved child to return from battle. Her precious son, he's, he's been gone for some time, and so naturally she's worried about him. She's peering out of the window, and in chapter 5, verse 31, she, she comforts herself with the thought that he's probably out raping women of the, the, the nations that he's conquered. Because that's the kind of guy he is. Sisera is a wicked and powerful enemy. And it's he, along with Jabin, that have cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years. And so it's a familiar pattern. Israel's rebellion leads to enemy rule. Which means now we should be expecting a rescuer. Who will God send as his deliverer this time, his judge this time? Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading or judging Israel at the time. Once again, the pattern continues. God sends a judge, and once again, they're not quite what we might expect. Not because they're left-handed like Ehud, or because they're a foreigner like Shamgar. Now, this time, the surprise is that God's rescuer, God's judge, is a woman. Now, clearly, that, that might not be a, a surprise or a shock in our culture today. It wouldn't surprise us that a woman might play a significant leading role uh, in the life of a group of people. Uh, but back then, it was a surprise. Back then, this is not what people would have expected to read. It's underlined for us in the passage, in the way that Deborah is introduced. The, the literal translation of verse 4 says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she was leading Israel. All the emphasis is on the fact that she's a woman. And so as a brief aside, just here, please don't, please don't believe the nonsense that God is somehow anti-women. The Bible is full of strong and faithful women who play significant roles in the story of salvation. We see it time and time again, and these women, well, sometimes they put the men to shame, which is kind of what's going on here, isn't it? Because straight after Deborah, we meet the guy, we meet Barak. In verse 6, Deborah calls Barak to come and fight against the mighty Sisera and his army. And she basically tells him in verse 6 and 7 that, that all he has to do is, is turn up, really. All he's got to do is show up, and the Lord will do the rest. But Barak, presumably knowing about those 900 chariots, seems a bit reluctant. 
verse 8, he says, I'll do it, I'll do it, but only if you come with me, Deborah. I'm, I'm right behind you, Deborah. Straight up, just, I'll be there. You go first. In other words, Barak comes across as a bit of a wimp in this story. He, he, he needs lots of reassurance. He needs a bit of, of hand-holding to do the job the Lord has called him to do. So, verse 9, Deborah gives him that reassurance. You can do it, Barak. I'll come with you. She reassures him, but, but notice she also gently rebukes him. Verse 9, she says, But because of the course you're choosing to take, the honor won't be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. We're going to come back to that a bit later on. But can you see the picture that we're getting uh, painted for us here in chapter 4? We've got Barak the wimp and Deborah the woman. These are the people that God is going to use. These are his deliverers. And so verse 13, Sisera's tanks arrive. And as Barak stands there with his knees knocking... Deborah says to him in verse 14, go, go, this is, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Go, Barak. God is with you. He goes before you. Go. Spurred on by Deborah's speech, Barak goes. He, he fights against Sisera. And in verse 15, Deborah is proved right. Uh, Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. All of God's enemies are destroyed. They are wiped out completely. All except one. Sneaky Sisera manages to escape, doesn't he? He flees the battle scene and ends up at the tent of a friend. Or so he thinks. Heber the Kenite just happens to have set up camp near the battle site. And so Sisera stumbles into his tent, and verse 18, he's greeted by Heber's daughter, Jael. Come in, my lord, she says. Don't, don't be afraid. You look exhausted from the battle. Come in, rest. Look, here's a, here's a nice warm blanket, some milk. Just relax. Recover, regain your strength. Don't worry, I'll keep watch. You've got nothing to worry about. And so poor tired Sisera snuggles up with his blanket and falls fast asleep. But then look at what happens in verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground. And as if this wasn't obvious, he died. Wicked Sisera comes to a gruesome end at the hands of Jael. Verse 22, Barak the brave bursts in. He's ready for a fight, ready to beat the baddie, but quickly realizes he's too late. The job is done. Sisera is dead, Jael is victorious, and so just as Deborah promised, the Lord has given the enemy into the hands of a woman. Jael gets the honor, Barak doesn't. And so the chapter ends. The chapter ends with God's enemies defeated, women honored, and Israel freed. It's another slightly strange, surprising story filled with unlikely heroes and some gory details. 
And so again, the question for us is, what is it about? What's the point? What are we meant to do with a story like this? Is it, is it a message about women in leadership? Or the dangers of camping? No. <laughs> no, I don't think it is. The answer, I think, comes in chapter 5. You see, this story of Jabin and Sisera's defeat comes with a soundtrack, a song that Deborah and Barak sing after their victory. And it's in the lyrics of the song that I think we get the point. I want us to see three things from the soundtrack. The first is that the Lord wins. Just as we saw last week, this story is told in a way that is meant to emphasize that victory belongs to the Lord. We see in chapter 4, as Deborah reminds Barak in verse 14, the Lord goes before you, Barak. He's given Sisera into your hands. Chapter 4 ends in verse 23. On that day, the Lord subdued Jabin, king of Canaan. The battle belongs to the Lord. The victory is his. And chapter 5 puts his victory in these kind of cosmic terms. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. When the Lord went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down with more water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. His Israel might have 900 chariots at his command, but the Lord has all of creation at his. Look across to 5 verse 20. From the heavens, the stars fought, from the courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, swept them away the age-old river, the river Kishon. Suddenly we get to see how the Lord defeated powerful Sisera and his chariots. He used a river, the river Kishon. An entire river was at the Lord's command. And so the victory, it wasn't about Deborah's leadership skills. It wasn't about Barak's bravery or lack of it. No, it was all to do with the Lord. All to do with his sovereign power. That's seen in the grand scale of the river Kishon and in the small details of a family camping trip. It was no accident that Heber the Kenite set up camp where he did. It was no accident or coincidence that the, the Kenites had happened to make an alliance with the Canaanites so that Sisera thought he was walking into the tent of a friend. Now these were all part of the sovereign plan of God. The Lord arranged it so that Jael would be in just the right place at just the right time. And he did it to show that he is the God who can defeat an army of tanks with a tent peg. I wonder if you've ever noticed how, how often God's people end up using strange, everyday objects to defeat their enemies. Here it's a, a hammer and a tent peg, isn't it? Last week, Shamgar uh, had a cattle prod uh, and took on hundreds of Philistines. Next week, Gideon is going to be armed with some jars and trumpets. There are loads more examples that we can find in Scripture, and the point is that God shows Israel again and again and again that victory is not found in their strength. It is not found in the size of their army or their weapons. It's found in the Lord. He is the one who wins. He is the one who has the victory. 
And today we know that, don't we? Because in the end, God is the one who wins the ultimate victory. Not through a tent peg, but on a cross. It was on the cross that Jesus looked like he had lost the fight, looked like he had been defeated and destroyed by an enemy too great and powerful for him. But the reality was it was on the cross where he won his greatest victory. It was on the cross, it was as though Jesus took a a hammer and a nail and he smashed it through the temple of our greatest enemies. By dying in our place and then rising again, Jesus defeated death. He smashed Satan, and he solved the ultimate problem of our sin. And so as unlikely and as unusual as it seems, Jesus is the God who wins. And we have to remember that every time we doubt whether we've chosen the right side. Which leads us to the second thing we see in this song. God wins, but only some follow. We've seen already in chapter 4 that Barak is a little bit of a wimp, that he needs his hand-holding through most of it. Uh, But before we get kind of too harsh on Barak, we mustn't forget that he does get there in the end, doesn't he? He does go out to fight. He does face Sisera. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament tells us that Barak is a faithful hero. He, He obeys the Lord. Like many of us, Barak needs some reassurance but he gets there in the end. That's more than can be said of some other people in the story. Chapter 5 begins by celebrating the faithful tribes of Israel who went out and followed Barak to fight the enemy. In verses 14 and 15, we hear about Ephraim and Benjamin, Zebulun and Issachar. It starts well for Israel. But then in verse 15, we read this. We read that, In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. When the call of Deborah and Barak came, the Reubenites called a committee meeting. They needed time to stop and think. Time to pause and reflect, to consider their options. And as verse 15 and 16 goes on to say, in the end, after much prayer and consideration and careful searching of their hearts, they decided to stay at home. Listening to the sounds of shepherds whistling in the wind seemed like a better idea than going to fight. Lots of searching of heart, but no action. And they weren't the only ones. In verse 17, we read of Gilead. They stayed beyond the Jordan, probably thinking that it wasn't their fight. They didn't need to get involved. The tribe of Dan stayed by their ships, too busy trading and making money to go and enter into some battle. The tribe of Asher stayed by the coast, maybe enjoying a slower, more comfortable pace of life by the sea. Who knows? But these tribes, they might have been God's, uh, members of God's people. They might have said they were on God's side, but they didn't act like it. And again, the same can be true for us today. When Jesus calls people to follow him, he he leaves us in no doubt what that actually means, what it involves. In Mark's gospel, he says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
We've been seeing this on Sunday mornings, haven't we? Following Jesus is more than just an intellectual ascent to some guy that lived a long time ago that did some pretty amazing things. No, it's this turning around. It's, it's a complete change of allegiance. No longer living for King me, but for living, living for King Jesus. No longer living according to my desires and my priorities, but living according to his Jesus calls us to wholehearted obedience, to follow him, no matter what. And so Judges chapter 5 is a challenge to us, isn't it? It's a challenge because it should make us ask, am I more like the people of Zebulun, those that risked their very lives for the Lord, verse 18, or am I like the people of Reuben? Lots of heart searching, but in the end, stay at home. In other words, will I, will I throw myself wholeheartedly into the service of God? Will I follow Jesus, knowing that he wins, knowing that he's victorious, that his side is always the best side to be on? Or will I hold back? Will I put it off to another day? Wait until things have settled down a bit and life has kind of got back to normal. Then I can take Jesus a bit more seriously. Whose side am I on? It's an important question and it's a question that all of us need to ask ourselves. Because in the end, we all need to choose, don't we? In the end, there is no such thing as sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus. You can't live with a foot in both camps. Which brings us to the last thing we see in the song. God wins, some follow, so choose a side. Choose a side. The song ends with two women. And these two women, they represent the two sides, the only two sides that really exist. First, there's Jael. Verse 24 says, she's the most blessed of women, the most blessed of all tent-dwelling women. What's so great about Jael? Why is she blessed by the Lord? Well, chapter 5, straight after that, goes on to describe her gruesome victory over Sisera. How she gave him a milk in a bowl fit for nobles, but then crushed his head with a tent peg. The point isn't that she's blessed because of her resourcefulness. It's not her morally dubious deception that is the way to God's blessing. The reason Jael is blessed is because she's on the right side. She's on the Lord's side. Despite her father's alliance with the Canaanites, she chooses to follow the Lord. That's emphasized for us by the next woman we meet in verse 28. We've already briefly met her, Sisera's mum. Sisera's mum stands at the window waiting for her wicked son to return. She looks and she longs for him, but she has no idea that that he's perished at the hands of jail. He's been punished for the very wickedness that she comforts herself with in verse 30. And so this song ends with these two women. Two women who represent the only two sides that really matter. And so we read right at the end of, verse, of chapter 5, verse 31, So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength, then the land had peace for 40 years. The Lord wins. His enemies are defeated. 
his people, those that love him, live in peace. And so the question it leaves us with is, whose side are you on? Which will you choose? Deborah, Barak, Jael, they, they show us the way, don't they? The best side is always the Lord's side. So are you with him? Whose side are you on? Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that your word shows us again and again that you are victorious, that nothing and no one can stand in your way. And Father, we thank and praise you that that is most clear for us as we see Jesus on the cross, as he defeats death, as he smashes Satan and solves our problem of sin. Father, we praise you for our victorious King. And we ask that you would help us to follow him wholeheartedly, to trust him, to depend on him, to have faith in him, and to walk in obedience to him. We ask it in his name. Amen. We're going to sing again now. Um, We've been thinking a lot in Judges about how salvation belongs to the Lord, and we're going to sing of that as we close. So as the band start playing, let's stand together and sing.